HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy, a free online resource for hospitality professionals, offering resources for bartenders at all levels. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. There's one paper already, and they were able to look at an amazing cheese necklace. I mean, who would wear a cheese necklace on a, on, on a, a mummified individual, naturally mummified individual in the Gobi Desert where it's extremely dry? And they compared the cheese with feta cheese. And if you know anything about feta cheese, feta cheese is made using, using rennet. And they'll say, look, there's a feta cheese. We can see the way the enzymes specifically cut the feta cheese. We can look at the cheese on this mummy. And I think that was wonderful. We should all be wearing cheese necklaces. Come on. Why are we all wearing cheese necklaces? It should be the new thing. That's archaeochemist Matthew Collins making a good argument for replacing your candy necklace with one made of feta. The reason that necklace survived for so long isn't necessarily the magical powers of cheese. It's about science. From how we make it to what we like to eat, we can learn a lot by looking at the scientific properties of food. So put on your lab coats, because this week on Meat and 3, we're getting scientific— in the kitchen, on the plate, and in our bellies. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Season 11 of Meat and 3. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and 3. While we may not be wearing feta necklaces, we do still love cheese. HRN's resident cheesemaker, H. Conley, decided to take on the question of how chemistry works in one of our most beloved contemporary dairy products, cream cheese. One of the first things people learn about me is that I'm obsessed with cheese. I spent the last four years as a cheddar cheesemaker who dabbled in homemade ricotta and cream cheese on weekends. But even with all of this experience, pasteurizing, adding culture and rennet, cooking, milling, and pressing curd, I still don't know too much about the science behind cheesemaking. I know what I'm looking for, but not why it's happening. So last week, my partner and I made cream cheese, and I did a lot of research into what goes on inside milk. 
And so that's four cups of cream. And then we're gonna do four cups of milk. Milk is about 87% water, 13% solids. It has lactose, casein and whey proteins, fat and minerals. There are cheeses made with acid like vinegar and lemon juice and cheeses made with culture and rennet. Acid cheeses have the light, fresh flavor of ricotta and paneer. Cheeses with more intense flavors are made with cultures, also called starter bacteria. I used cream cheese culture and asked my partner Griffin to read the small print on the packet. The ingredients are sucrose, maltodextrins, lactic bacteria, and then they've got the different uh, species, lactus, lactus, and lactus, lactus, cremoris. Okay. And they also include organic vegetable rennet. The bacteria lower the pH of the milk by digesting lactose, which is a sugar, into lactic acid. This is similar to what yeast does to the sugar and juice to create alcohol. The other important ingredient is rennet, a liquid or powder that has a strong enzyme. It works on the casein proteins. In milk, casein is clumped together into spherical shapes called micelles. There are multiple different types of casein, but one type, K-casein, stabilizes the structure of the micelles. K-casein ends in sugar molecules called glycomacropeptides, so when the caseins are bundled together, there's a sugar coating around the micelles. This coating attracts water, so the micelles stay separate from each other, all suspended in water. The enzyme in rennet clips off the sugar tips, which exposes a greasy surface. The now oily micelles repel water, so they clump together, and this is what makes curd. The cream cheese I made had culture and rennet together. I sprinkled it in, mixed for 15 seconds, covered the pot, and left it for at least 12 hours. The cream cheese looks very nicely set up. It smells extremely yogurty. So now I'm going to spoon it over the cheesecloth I have. I left my curd to drain overnight using my salad spinner to catch the excess whey. Since milk has so much water, the proportion of whey to curd can seem almost absurd. Depending on how much you let the curd drain, the amounts can vary, but a 10% yield is pretty normal. My cream cheese is a lovely, intense sour and a light, almost whipped texture. This process took about 40 minutes over the course of 24 hours. Cheese can seem intimidating, but the bacteria and rennet do all the hard work, while you get to reap the delicious, tangy rewards. Cream cheese isn't the only food with a relationship to bacteria. Stanford scientists recently completed a study that showed the impact of eating fermented foods like yogurt or kombucha can have on your gut bacteria and your immune system. Brianna Brady talked to Dr. Hannah Wastick, one of the authors of the paper, about what's going on in our microbiomes. There's a lot we don't know about the horde of tiny organisms taking up residence in our digestive system. But today, we're going to start with what we do know. 
So bacteria have been evolving with mammals for billions of years, and a lot of what they do is regulation of metabolism and regulation of the immune system. Uh, so by metabolism, I just mean the bacteria in your gut are responsible for breaking down food that our stomach is not able to do. On uh, the second part, my uh, microbiome is responsible for regulating our immune system, telling our body when it's appropriate to have inflammation, when anti-inflammation is appropriate uh, so that we stay healthy. Sometimes, though, the bacteria we have aren't as good at regulating that inflammation. Chronic inflammation, which is when our cells are producing more inflammatory proteins than they need to, is associated with diseases like diabetes. In general, the more diverse your microbiome, the better for your immune response. Whereas if you have a very diverse microbiome that has a lot of different niches, really complex ecosystem, it's going to be able to uh, you know, stabilize after that perturbation a lot easier, so you get sick a lot less uh, often. So the question becomes, how do we encourage that diversity? Fermented foods are one of the answers. What I like to say fermented foods are is the difference between spoiled milk and yogurt. Um, so, you know, if I had a glass of milk and I poured it and kept it at room temperature for three days and then I gave it to you to drink, you know, you would probably turn your nose to it and everything in your body would say don't drink it because it's going to make you sick and that would be that would be correct but for yogurt or for kefir which are made from milk and fermented from milk if i put a defined community of microbes in that milk before i handed it to you after three days it would smell good you'd be able to drink it it would taste good and according to our study it might make you healthier dr wastick's study observed their subjects over the course of 17 weeks in that short time, the group with a diet high in fermented foods showed an increase in microbiome diversity and a decrease in inflammatory activity. Even though fermented foods have long been thought to be good for your gut, according to Dr. Wastick, this is the first study that has shown the effect they can have on your immune system. But there are still mysteries to solve. Is it the microbes that you're consuming in the fermented foods or is it other parts of the fermented food that's important? And we don't know. Hopefully, in the future, there will be more studies to unlock why eating sauerkraut can boost our immune system. For now, we might follow Dr. Wastick's lead. I'm very skeptical of, like, dietary studies in general, like, before I joined the lab. And I would have not believed this result unless I had worked on the data myself. Um, and it has completely convinced me to eat as much fermented foods as possible. So, you know, I go to Costco and get, like, the flats of yogurt or yukults and kimchi. I have, like four different types of kimchi in my fridge right now. I don't know about you, but I'll be having some yogurt for breakfast. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3 after a brief break. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals, offering resources for bartenders at all levels. Whether you're a bartender, barback, or manager, or if you're completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy-to-access, free resources to help you learn new skills or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy provides everything you need to raise the bar and enhance your career. There's members-only content like e-learnings and downloadable tools. There's masterclass events with global industry experts. They have quizzes to test your knowledge. You can boost sales by creating profitable menus and grow your business by expanding your online presence. Diageo Bar Academy is also the marquee sponsor of the 2021 Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards, 
This year's Spirited Awards theme is Community, acknowledging the hard work and resilience of the hospitality industry over the last year. Visit diageobaracademy.com to watch this year's Spirited Awards, taking place September 23rd. HRN podcasts like The Speakeasy, Back Bar, and Agave Road Trip are nominated for Best Podcast, so be sure to tune in and show some support. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Welcome back to Meet in Three. If you can't stand eating some of the fermented foods from our last segment, but still want to reap their health benefits, there may be good news for you. In a recent episode of Why Food, HRN explored the science of flavor preferences and how these preferences can change. While it may be difficult to quantify, scientists tend to agree that smell is central to our experience of flavor. That means our preferences for certain smells will have a big impact on what foods we like. But why do we have these preferences in the first place? As far as neuroscientists know, there are no smells that are intrinsically more attractive or less attractive to humans. They're all learned. Rob Dunn is a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University. He's also the co-author of the book Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. Studies that we describe in the book have shown that in utero, that the smells that babies experience um, via their mother's food and those aromas travel through the amniotic fluid, any of those smells the babies are exposed to When they're born, they like those smells. Rob says that our relationship with smells continues to change after we're born. Good or bad experiences around certain smells will affect how much we enjoy them. That means we can change our perception of smells and thus we can change what foods we like. That's even true for foods that polarize eaters. According to Rob, fermented foods like the ones Brianna talked about in our last segment tend to be divisive. Rob has heard from Korean-American students who were teased for eating kimchi as children. But as those students grew up, attitudes towards kimchi changed. And so now the same food that got them marginalized as kids is a food that people view as kind of a, I mean, almost a prestige food. And buried in that story is the reality that at some point, people who weren't exposed to kimchi as kids We're trying it and coming to learn to like it. Rob says there is an important lesson in how our relationship to smells and flavor evolve. And so I think what we need to recognize is that we have the capacity to learn to like many kinds of food. And and so to actively to try them and to, to recognize the initial smell, the initial flavor we experience of a food might not be the end of the story. Even our strongest responses to particular foods might say more about us than they necessarily say about the food. To hear about everything from the role of flavor in the extinction of mammoths to the new tastes that scientists are trying to find, listen to the full interview with Rob Dunn on episode 165 of Why Food. Scientific developments aren't just telling us about our current preferences and diets, however. New archaeological studies have uncovered ways to look at what people were eating thousands of years ago, 
As it turns out, the Meat and Three team's love of cheese has ancient roots. Zoe Denkla spoke to the archaeochemist you heard from at the top of our episode about the feta necklace and much more. As a history major in college, I spent a lot of time studying the past, and I loved it. But for some reason, I could never get into ancient history. I don't know. It all felt so dry, so hypothetical, so distant. But I heard about this new archaeological work on ancient food, and I've been kind of hooked. People from all these different fields have teamed up to analyze food particles that have somehow remained intact for thousands of years. It all started with scientists looking more closely at ancient pottery, which, prior to, hadn't been studied a ton. What's so interesting about some broken pots when you can dig up jewelry or mummified bodies? Turns out, food particles have been preserved in this cookware since before the ancient Greeks or Romans were around. And with new scientific methods, we're uncovering a whole new layer of the ancient world. The idea that this thing has been sitting in the ground and we've picked it out, we scraped the stuff out, we've put it into a shiny machine with flashing lights that goes ping, and we've suddenly got this data out which is telling us about how this, what's there and how it's been processed. Yeah, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. And the way that these technologies are unveiling this kind of hidden record, this molecular record. That's Matthew Collins an archaeochemist who splits his time between England and Denmark. I'm one of those people who are beginning to use medical technologies in genomics and proteomics to ask questions about the past. Genomics and proteomics, a.k.a. the study of genes and proteins. Matthew switched over from paleontology to archaeology, meaning he went from studying objects that are millions of years old to things that are only thousands. Even so, Matthew was blown away by how long these food molecules have lasted in things like pottery, parchment, and soil. You would not imagine, would you, that some stuff you left rotting on the shelf would be there 3,000 years later. The idea that someone was preparing food 4,000 years ago, and that record is still there for thousand years later. It's just mind-blowing, really. You can't comprehend those timescales. Okay, okay. To be clear, it's not exactly like the food was left lying there on the shelf for thousands of years and no one noticed till now. These remnants cannot be seen by the naked eye. Only recently have we developed technology to examine these samples on such a small scale. Matthew gives us the specifics these techniques which have been exploited to sequence the human genome are just ideally suited to doing the same thing for archaeological samples and is really opening up a whole new understanding of the past. In order to use these fancy new technologies on ancient samples, their molecules need to still be relatively intact. We're talking about very old samples here, so durability is key. Think about it on a macro scale with an ancient ruin. Let's say it's a house. There are certain parts of a building that deteriorate pretty quickly. The decorations, the doors, the paint on the walls. But the bricks, the grout, the foundation are more likely to stand the test of time. 
The building may no longer be intact, but these tougher materials that do stick around give us clues into how people lived thousands of years ago. The same is true for ancient food. It has three main molecules, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. Imagine the lipids, the fat molecules in food, are the foundation. They're the toughest of the three, so they're most likely to be found. The proteins are the walls. Under the right conditions, these parts of an ancient building can survive. And if so, they provide scientists with even more information. Finally, the carbohydrates are the paint on the walls, or maybe the furniture, an essential part of the building, but not likely to last for thousands of years. So, scientists who study these ancient food samples are left with two options. They can either focus on fats or proteins. Matthew currently works with proteins. Most recently, his team has been captivated by whey protein in milk. Now we've got very interested in that milk protein, the one that's found in whey, because it seems to be extraordinarily abundant, both trapped in their teeth in the dental plaque, but also found in the pottery vessels that they've been using. Matthew isn't just identifying dairy within an ancient sample. By sequencing these proteins, he's found evidence of rennet and whey. These should, hopefully, sound familiar. They're the ones that allowed scientists to identify the mummy cheese necklace or the enzymes that helped HC turn milk and cream into cream cheese. Just a quick reminder, rennet breaks down milk's sugar, so molecules clump together and separate from their whey, the liquid in milk. These curds are naturally acidic, so they can more easily fend off bacteria and last longer than regular milk. Focusing on proteins allows Matthew to ask more complex questions about ancient diets. Questions like how milk was processed and preserved so long ago. The idea that you would use an enzyme produced in the stomach of a calf to turn a liquid milk into a solid cheese. I guess probably, you know, they they were storing milk in a calf's stomach and noticed the reaction. But the idea of using rennet, I mean, the idea of using so many of these what are now toxic materials, you know, fresh foods are often toxic and need to be processed. How did anyone come up with those ideas? And beginning to start to see direct evidence of that. There's a lot of debate on how far back these dairy preservation methods go. Cheese comes up often in Greek and Roman mythology, so many believed it was created 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. But others hypothesized rennet and whey were used even earlier, ever since we domesticated herding animals, so more like 8,000 years ago. Matthew's findings of rennet and whey start to clear up this confusion. We now have concrete quantitative evidence that people were eating and producing products like cheese, yogurt, and kefir as early as 7,500 years ago. These archaeological discoveries give us a window into the daily lives of ancient people. Someone making cheese and wearing it on a necklace, or a mother thousands of years ago bottle-feeding her baby from an animal-shaped vessel, even crowds eating hard-boiled eggs as they watch gladiators battle in a British amphitheater. I don't know about you, but the ancient world is starting to feel a lot less dry.
Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to H. Conley, Brianna Brady, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Zoe Denkla. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.